0: hello 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 know-it-alls and welcome back to the know-it-all podcast i am your host riley sue and i am so excited to be joining you for another installment in our pursuit to know a little bit about everything welcome to season two my friends I don't know about for y'all, but for me, it has been a long break and I have genuinely missed sitting down to talk about wildly fun and fascinating history with all of you guys. I had a great time working at the camp I volunteer for. It was a record year for all of us and I know I had one of the best years I've had in my almost decade of volunteering there, which that was a moment when I realized it's almost been a decade. In other parts of my life, I've been reading a lot, but I also took a solid brain break during this time. And after returning from my eight days working at that camp, I have become an Assassin's Creed girly now. (laughs) I've been playing Odyssey and it's just been scratching all the right parts of my brain. The history part, the adventure and action movie loving part, the mythology part. It's just on top of that, a beautifully made game. And then on top of on top of those things, the only games I've ever really played are... Are those like zoo tycoon animal crossing open map world building kind of style things. So jumping into a air quotes real game like Assassin's Creed has been pretty intimidating and a big change but one that I was excited to take on. All of that is to say that if there seems to be an increase in Greek history this season you now know why. <laughs> this week though we aren't moving into the Mediterranean quite yet We're going to be sticking stateside and covering the mystery and history of the lost Roanoke colony in Virginia. This is a story that I've known and told countless times throughout the years. But between tellings, it always seems that there's just one piece that changes due to a discovery or an outcome that I still can't say that I agree 100% on. So let's find out what the truth here is and how we can confidently recite the history of Roanoke. If you don't know Roanoke just off name alone, then don't sweat it. I bet you know her hotter, way more successful younger cousin though. Plymouth Colony? Yeah, you know the one with Plymouth Rock and the fake story about Thanksgiving that every kindergartner in US history is saying about. That's the one? Yeah. Plymouth Colony was settled in 1620 and is famous for being the landing spot of the Mayflower and the first permanent English colony in New England. How about one step further? Do you know Roanoke's younger and possibly eerier cousin Jamestown, Virginia? You've probably seen her in the 1995 Academy and Golden Globe winning film Pocahontas. Or maybe you know that nearby Jamestown in 1619, the first enslaved African people arrived to British North America. Roanoke's beginnings have very similar roots to these two places, so if you're familiar with how the funding and creation of those colonies went, then this one will feel pretty similar. The years we're looking at, though, when it comes to taking a deeper look at Roanoke is 1585 to 1590, a time where England was experiencing the ripple effects of the life and legacy from Henry VIII and his many wives, where bad weather and changes in religious views were causing more and more social strain amongst neighbors. Ships were stronger and faster than they'd ever been before and so naval operations and conflicts were increasing, but so did the ability of people to take these vessels on longer and harder journeys. The world was opening up and collapsing in ways that it never had before. Colonization and the establishment of the new world was an exciting way for both countries and individuals alike to go and attempt to make their mark on the new global stage. Whether it was to flex military power, to try and escape religious persecution, or for any number of other reasons, people were at unprecedented rates and numbers leaving their homes and their families to set up a life somewhere they'd never even seen before. I want to take a moment and acknowledge that while these people were the first colonists and English people to come and settle North America, they were not the first humans to inhabit these areas or live in these areas. It's been estimated that pre-contact and pre-colonization there were more than 112 million native peoples living in North America. This specific area in the Outer Banks of Virginia was inhabited by Lumbee, Roanoke, and Croatan tribes with many more like the Secotan, Chesapeake, Potiskeet, and Manamusket, their close neighbors. Moving from the natives who were there to the people who arrived there later, our story begins with Sir Walter Raleigh, born in 1552 to a wealthy gentry family of Protestant faith in Devon, England. His parents were Walter Raleigh and Catherine Champernown. His brother was Caro Raleigh, and his half-brothers were Sir Humphrey Gilbert, John Gilbert, and Adrian Gilbert. Walter's mother, Catherine, had an aunt named Cat Ashley, who was a governess to Queen Elizabeth I. Auntie Cat introduced both Walter and Humphrey to the Queen's court, though their mother's long familial history meant that they had an inn already anyway, Nepo Babies of England. And during both the reigns of Elizabeth I and James I, all of the Raleigh and Gilbert brothers became very prominent. Okay, y'all, I don't want to seem like I'm picking favorites or anything, or that I hate Walter. But like, he was not qualified for this job, which is going to become very apparent as I tell this story, but that's because it was literally created for his brother and not for him. You see, whereas Walter was successful in a military sense and he'd been involved in a lot of conflicts before Virginia and Roanoke came up, his brother had been off in like colonizer finishing school or something. Walter's older brother, Humphrey Gilbert, spoke French and he spoke Spanish. He studied war and he studied navigation and he was even a member of parliament at one point during his lifetime. Humphrey was fiercely defendant of his country and the crown, and as European expansionism and the race to establish strongholds in other areas around the globe became the center of conversation in English courts, Humphrey's focus was heavily centered on finding a way to outdo Spain and Christopher Columbus. At this time the Spanish were still riding the power high of the fact that they were the first Europeans to settle in the Americas and that they had developed forts and trading posts throughout the Caribbean and other southern parts of North America. And so England needed to catch up to Spain to show that they were more powerful than any fleet on the seas or force on the ground. That meant that they needed to settle in the new world. So Humphrey was really into the idea of England becoming a powerhouse in expansion. He was constantly traveling back and forth from England to later Canada or the United States, and Humphrey particularly spent a lot of time in Newfoundland, briefly claiming the land for England in 1583. He was unsuccessful because on the passage back from that expedition, Sir Humphrey Gilbert died aboard his ship, the Squirrel, yes, the Squirrel, during a storm. The entire vessel and all hands were lost shortly after they spotted a sea monster that had the head of a lion with glaring eyes. Pretty eerie, in my opinion. And Humphrey was like totally de the whole time, sitting on the end of the boat just like reading a book. Anyway, but before Humphrey had passed, he had secured a patent with the crown to go and explore the New World with intent to establish a colony. Humphrey died in 1583, but by 1584, the patent to establish that colony had been divided and passed to none other than his younger brother, Sir Walter Raleigh. Walter undertook the patent and the expedition for any land north of Spanish Florida and south of Newfoundland thus embarking on the first sustained attempt by the crown at colonization in North America. As I mentioned before, there were a few different native groups that lived in this area pre-contact. There had also been an exploration of the Outer Banks by Italian Giovanni da Verrazzano for France in 1524, but he thought that the area south of Roanoke Island, Pemlico Sound, was the Pacific Ocean, and so Giovanni concluded that, The barrier islands were just an isthmus, and therefore were connected to large pieces of land rather than existing as their own barrier coastline. Giovanni thought this was a shortcut to China and took his findings back to the King of France and to the Crown of England, but neither of them were interested in pursuing the matter at that time. Walter Raleigh was officially granted a charter on March 25, 1584, specifying that he needed to establish a colony by 1591 or he would lose his rights to colonization. It also specified that he was to, quote, discover, search, find out, and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries, and territories to have, hold, occupy, and enjoy, end quote. One of the main objectives for Raleigh's establishment of a colony was that it would serve as a base from which to send privateers on raids against Spanish treasure fleets. Also part of the charter and agreements was that Walter Raleigh was forbidden from leaving the Queen's side, So instead of going on the voyages and governing his colony from, you know, the colony, he instead delegated the missions to his associates and did his best to oversee the creation of this entirely new world from London. In a world where boats sank all the time and took months to go back and forth and phones didn't exist, never mind the internet or anything like that, he was supposed to remotely work from London on opening an entirely new country in Virginia. Like, that's just not seeming possible even if my boy Walt had access to the internet. There's no amount of Zoom calls or Slack messages that can build a country. Like, Rome wasn't built with an IM or whatever the saying is. <laughs> Quickly after Walter was granted his charter and set up his home office, arrangements were made for someone to go on an expedition and explore this new claim. The Amadeus-Barlow expedition departed from England on April 27, 1584, with two ships. Philip Amadeus was the captain of the larger vessel, and Arthur Barlow commanded the other. The ships used the standard trade route for transatlantic voyages, sailing south to catch trade winds and into the West Indies, where they then stopped to collect fresh water. The ships then sailed north until July 4th when they sighted land at what would later be called Cape Fear. The fleet made true landfall on July 13th on what's now Nags Head, and they named the location that they landed at Port Ferdinando after a sailor named Fernandez who had discovered it. The native groups in this area had likely encountered or at least observed Europeans that were on previous expeditions. The Secotan tribe controlled Roanoke Island and the mainland between Marl Sound and Pamlico River. They quickly made contact with the English and established friendly relations. The chieftain of the Secotan, Wingina, had recently been injured in a war with the Pamlico, so his brother, Granganimo, represented the tribe in his place. When the Amadeus Barlow expedition returned to England in the fall of 1584, all members of the expedition spoke highly of the hospitality that was shown by the native people, and many members stated that they thought Virginia's Outer Banks had a strategic location along the coastline and trade routes. The expedition also brought back two young native men when Cheze, a Sekitan man, and Menteo, a Croatan man whose mother was actually the chieftain of Croatoan Island. All the reports from the expedition said the land was pleasant and bountiful, making allusions to the Golden Age and the Garden of Eden. So the queen was unsurprisingly impressed with the results of Raleigh's expedition that he had, air quotes, remotely overseen. So much so that in a 1585 ceremony to knight Walter Raleigh, she proclaimed that the land granted to him would be called Virginia and proclaimed him, quote, Knight, Lord, and Governor of Virginia," end quote. This was all it took for Walter, er, sorry, Sir Walter, to start running all around London looking for investors to fully fund a colony. Let's pause here on all the colony nonsense, and I want to take a second to talk about Winchese and Menteo's visit to London. While the two men were visiting in London, they stayed with Sir Walter Raleigh at Durham House and were tasked with assisting scientist Thomas Harriot in deciphering and learning the Algonquin language. Wanchese and Manteo were a sensation in court, and the English people were fascinated by their presence. But, as I mentioned, they were there to help Raleigh gather intel, not to be a publicity stunt for his project. Raleigh kept his visitors close by and had them on restricted access. Wanchese was suspicious of English motives and never grew close to his captors, but Manteo befriended his hosts and was pleased to serve as a mediator and interpreter for the English people. He grew particularly close to Thomas Harriet, and the two men would spend days in each other's company. Harriet questioned Manteo closely about his life back in his homeland and learned information that was greatly advantageous to the English. And whether they cooperated or not, Sir Walt did make his exotic captives available to one group of people, wealthy Britons. He allowed those with deep enough pockets to come and visit him and meet the two men, and Raleigh was successful in raising funds for his plans, a new expedition prepared to depart in 1585. On April 9, 1585, the fleet departed Plymouth, England, heading south. The group was originally intended to consist of 69 colonists, which would have been the magic number, but approximately 600 men had been sent on the voyage. Around half of them were meant to stay, and then a second wave of men were to arrive later. Ralph Lane was appointed governor of the colony, and Raleigh had planned for it to be a military-focused operation that also focused on the exploration of the area's natural resources. Manteo and Wanchese were in attendance on the voyage to return to their homeland. Thomas Harriet also journeyed to Virginia along with a few other civilians, and the seven ships were the Tiger, the Roebuck, the Red Lion, the Elizabeth, the Dorothy, and two smaller unnamed ships. The voyage from England to the new colony was not easy, and a storm off the coast of Portugal separated the Tiger from the rest of the fleet, whilst also sinking one of the smaller unnamed ships. Thankfully, the fleet had planned for an event like this one, so the Tiger just kept on their path and reached the rendezvous point on May 11th, ahead of the other boats and men. While waiting for the rest of the fleet to arrive, the men of the Tiger established a base camp where the crew could rest and defend themselves from Spanish forces. They also used the opportunity as a sort of practice run for when they had to build their fort at the permanent settlement. While at the new camp, they built a new boat to replace the one lost at sea, and shortly after the crew of the Tiger finished building their fort and their ship, the Elizabeth arrived on May 19th. The four other remaining ships of the Lane Colony fleet never made it to the rendezvous point. The remaining of the smaller ships encountered issues near Jamaica and ran out of supplies, and it wasn't until mid-June that the three other ships, the Roebuck, the Red Lion, and the Dorothy, made it to the Outer Banks of Virginia. The Red Lion dumped around 30 men on Croatoan Island and departed to find work in Newfoundland, While waiting for the other ships to arrive, the fort began to run low on supplies, so Sir Richard Grenville made arrangements with local Spanish authorities in hopes of obtaining fresh food. When the Spanish failed to deliver, Grenville suspected that they would soon attack the fort, and they quickly abandoned it. Grenville and his men continued up the coast until later in June when on the 26th, the Tiger struck a shoal near Orcacoke Inlet, causing most of the food supplies on board the ship to be ruined, and the ship itself nearly destroyed. The Tiger and Grenville's fleet were supposed to stay in the colony throughout the winter, supporting it and possibly using it as a new base for privateering. But between the wreck of the ship and the loss of supplies and the shallow inlets of the outer banks, the region didn't have enough resources or even nautical ability to support the settlement that had been previously planned. The colony's new top priority would be to find a better harbor. After repairs, the Tiger continued with the rest of its fleet to Port Ferdinando on Nags Head where they reunited with the Roebuck and the Dorothy. It's also presumed that at this time they picked up the men from the Red Lion. On August 5th, a man named John Arundel took command of one of the faster ships and set sail for England to report on the expedition's safe arrival. The loss of supplies and the wreckage of the Tiger meant that the colony wouldn't be able to support all of the men that it had originally intended to throughout the winter. Instead, the original plan of fewer settlers was more what they had to go for, and it was decided that around 100 would stay with Ralph Lane. This would be plenty of people to support the colony while they awaited the arrival of another ship that was set to leave from England that very month in June of 1585. The only issue was that that ship had actually been diverted to Newfoundland to assist in alerting fishing fleets that the Spanish were seizing English commercial vessels in retaliation for privateering. The men in the Outer Banks, of course, had no way to know that. So until a resupply mission could be arranged, the colony would be heavily dependent on the native groups that were around them. This, of course, was not helped by the fact that while they were waiting for permanent establishment, Grenville arranged for a few expeditions to explore the area around Pamlico Sound. The first of these was in July, and it was to be led by Winchesi. On July 3rd, 1585, the party set out to, quote, send word of our arriving to Wingino at Roanoke, end quote. Winchesi slipped away from the English and returned to Dazamangapong, urging the natives there to resist the newcomers. By July 6th, Grenville was worried about Winchese and sent one of his men with Manteo to recover him. The villagers in Dazimongaponk could not be persuaded to give Winchese up, and so he remained with the natives. The later of these expeditions included visiting the Sekatan villages of Akisagak, Pamlico, and Sekatan. This party made contact with the locals and it gave Harriet an opportunity to use the language that he'd been learning. After this initial contact though, a silver cup was reported missing and believing the cup to have been stolen, Grenville sent men back to Aquascagoc to demand the return of the item. The villagers, of course, didn't produce the cup, because they probably didn't have it, and the Englishmen decided that the retribution for this incident would need to be grave. Amadeus and his men burnt down the entire town and all of its crops, sending the natives from their village fleeing. Manteo arranged a meeting between Grenville and Lane with Secotan leaders to decide on what land would be used by the English for settlement. Both sides agreed to Roanoke Island due to its strategic placement for access to the ocean, as well as the island's ability to avoid detection by Spanish patrols due to its natural position near Nags Head. Lane began construction of a fort on the north side of the island and Grenville set sail for England on board the Tiger in August. And later the Roebuck left Roanoke in early September of 1585, which left just one small ship to be commanded by Amadeus. Records show that 107 men remained with Ralph Lane in the colony for a total population of 108. Little information survives about what happened in the colony between September 1585 and March 1586, making a full assessment and retelling of the winter impossible. Many of the men who had joined the mission expected to find gold and silver in Virginia, and when none was found, these men became dispirited and decided the entire venture was a waste of their time. The English also tried to discover where local native groups gathered their copper, but were never able to track the metal to its origin. And in the fall of 1585, colonists acquired corn from their neighbors to help offset their depleting supplies. It's likely that the colony had exhausted their English supplies and American corn by October, and the remaining food was so unpleasant and far between that it no doubt had a large impact on the men's low morale. Some of the colonists explored the area around Roanoke into the Chesapeake Bay and Virginia territory. Amadeus and Harriet ventured the most, and Harriet noticed, though he couldn't explain, that each town the colonists visited would quickly after suffer a deadly epidemic. This was likely influenza or smallpox, and like I said, Harriet couldn't explain it, but he did notice the pattern. The Secotan suspected that the disease was caused by supernatural forces unleashed by the English. When Gina himself even fell sick and when his own people couldn't heal him, he asked for help from the Englishmen. They prayed for him and he recovered. Wengina was so impressed that he asked for the colonists to share this power with other natives. This, though, only hastened the spread of whatever infection was among them. The illness and its rapidity likely had a severe impact on the fall harvest, at a time when Lane's colony would be heavily dependent on its neighbors and their generosity to supplement their extremely limited rations. This is, of course, a pressure cooker for conflict, and by the spring, relations between the colony and the Sekatan were strained. The spring also brought the death of Granganimo, who had been a powerful advocate for the colony. His death also helped to turn Wingina against the English, and he changed his name to Pamispan, meaning the one who watches, suggestive of his new adoption of a cautious and vigilant policy. The Secotan also established a new temporary tribal capital on Roanoke Island. The English, though, being caught up in their pity party of, oh, we have no food, and oh, there's no gold here, didn't even initially notice these changes as threats to their interests. They were just like, oh your name is Watcher now. That's fine. Oh you set up camp literally like on the very same small island as us. That's totally dope. Like come on guys you're literally eating all of these people's food and causing them to die so they don't have people to work the fields. You're burning down their villages over missing chalices like they don't like you. Why would they have any reason to like you in March of 1586, Ralph Lane met with Pemispan about a plan to explore the mainland, beyond the Sekatan Territory. Surprisingly, Pemispan supported the idea and advised Lane that the Chowanoak leader Metatonin was meeting with his allies to plan an attack on the English, and that there were 3,000 warriors gathered at Chattanoak. At the same time as this meeting, though, little sneaking and planning Pemispan had sent word to Metatonin that the English were coming, ensuring that both sides were expecting a fight. When Lane and his well-armed men arrived at Chattanoak, they found representatives of the Chattanoak, Manguak, Wepamoak, and Moradik. The gathering of leaders was not planning on attack and Lane took them by surprise, easily capturing metatonin. After he was caught, the Chowanoak leader informed Lane that it had been Pamispan who had requested the council gather in the first place. Basically, from here on out in this story, Pamispan is going to be fucking with the colonists at every opportunity that he has. But Metatonin, on the other hand, quickly gained Lane's trust by offering him information about tribes and opportunities that the English had not yet made contact with. He described a rich and powerful king to the northeast and warned that Lane should bring a considerable force if he wanted to reach them. Based on this information, Lane envisioned a detailed plan in which his forces would divide into two groups traveling up separate rivers to resettle in Chesapeake Bay. He ultimately decided, however, that he needed to wait on this mission until the colony received fresh supplies which Grenville told him would be arriving by Easter of 1586. In the meantime, Lane ransomed Metatonin and had another captive, Skiko, sent back to Roanoke as a hostage. He then proceeded with around 40 men for about 100 miles up the Roanoke River in search of gold or copper deposits, but only found deserted villages and warriors lying in ambush. Lane had expected the native peoples to provide supplies and provisions along the river route, but Pameespan had sent word that the English were hostile and villages should withdraw from the river with their food supplies, leaving them high and dry in the middle of the river. So Lane returned with this group of men to Roanoke shortly after Easter. And by that point, they were starved and empty handed. On top of that, during their absence, they had been presumed dead and Pameespan was preparing to withdraw from Roanoke entirely and leave the colonists to starve. Pamispan was apparently so surprised by Lane's return that he reconsidered his plans entirely. Insinor, an elder in Pamispan's council, actually argued in favor of the English, and any hostility toward them was delayed. Later, word came that the Wepemac leader Okisko had pledged himself to Queen Elizabeth and Sir Walter Raleigh. This shift of power in the region further deterred Pemispan's frustration, and he instead ordered his people to sow crops and build fishing traps for the settlers. And on April 20th, Ensignor died, taking with him the last advocate for the English in Pemispan's inner circle. On top of this, Wencheze had risen to the position of senior advisor and was still distrustful of the English after his time with them. His confirmation of Pemispan's suspicions is all that it took. Pemispan evacuated the Secotan from Roanoke, destroyed all the fishing traps, and ordered his people to not sell food to the English. Left entirely to their own devices, the Roanoke colonists had no way to produce enough food to sustain their colony. Lane ordered his men to break into small groups so they could forage and beg for food in the Outer Banks and on the mainland. Lane decided to keep Skiko as a hostage, though Pemispan regularly met with him and thought he was sympathetic to the anti-English cause. Skiko informed Lane that Pemispan was planning a war council meeting on June 10th with various regional powers. The natives' plan of attack was to ambush Lane and the other colony leaders while they slept, then signal to their group to take out the remainder of the camp's population. Based on this plan, Lane sent out disinformation to the Sekatan that an English fleet had arrived. This was meant to force Pemispan's hand, and it worked. He gathered as many allies as he could for a meeting on May 31st in Dazamangapong. That night, Lane attacked the warriors' post at Roanoke, hoping to prevent them from alerting the mainland the next morning. The following day on June 1st, his top officers and 25 men visited the meeting at Dazamangapong under the pretense of discussing the freedom of Skiko. Once they were admitted to the council, Lane gave a signal for his men to attack. The fight broke out and Pamispan was shot, then fleeing into the woods. Lane's men went after him and caught up returning to their leader with the severed head of their target. The head was then impaled on a stake outside of the colony's fort. Pond's pestering had officially come to an end. In June, the colonists made contact with the fleet of Sir Francis Drake on his way back to England from the Caribbean. During his raids on the islands, Drake had acquired refugees, slaves, and hardware intended to be dropped off for what he thought would be a thriving colony at Roanoke. But upon learning of the colony's misfortunes, Drake agreed to leave behind four months of supplies and one of his ships. However, a hurricane hit the Outer Banks, sweeping the ship out to sea. After the storm, Lane persuaded his men to evacuate the colony, and Drake agreed to take them all back to England. Manteo and another native named Tawe joined them. Three of the Lane colonists were left behind and never heard from again. And because the colony was abandoned, it's also unclear what became of the slaves and refugees. There's no record of them ever arriving in England, and it's possible that Drake left them at Roanoke with some of the supplies that he had gathered. Drake's fleet, carrying the Lane colonists, arrived in England in July of 1586. Upon their arrival, the colonists introduced the country to tobacco, maize, and potatoes. A few days after Drake and the colonists evacuated, a single supply ship sent by Sir Walter Raleigh arrived in Roanoke. The crew couldn't find any trace of the colonists and left. Two weeks later, Grenville's relief fleet finally arrived with a year's worth of supplies and reinforcements of more than 400 men. Grenville conducted an extensive search and interrogated at least three natives, one of which was finally able to make them understand that the original group had evacuated. The fleet then returned to England, leaving behind 15 men to both maintain an English presence and protect Raleigh's claims to Roanoke Island. According to the Croatan, this small group of men was attacked by an alliance of mainland tribes shortly after Grenville left. The natives attacked with flaming arrows, setting fire to the food stores and forcing the few colonists to take up whatever weapons they could. Two Englishmen were killed. Nine of the men then retreated to the shore and fled the island on their boat. They picked up four other men that were returning from the creek and headed for Port Ferdinando. The 13 men were never seen again. Even though the Lane colony had been a massive failure, Raleigh was persuaded by Harriet, John White, who was an artist that had accompanied Harriet on the first expedition, and other influential Brits that he should have another try at establishing a colony. They were, however, slick enough to catch on to the idea that it was no longer safe to settle on Roanoke Island. So it was decided that the Chesapeake Bay would be a better location, and on January 7th, 1587, Raleigh approved a corporate charter to found the city of Raleigh, with John White as governor and 12 assistants. 115 people agreed to join the colony, including White's pregnant daughter, Eleanor, and her husband, Ananias Dare. Most of the colonists were middle-class Londoners, likely looking to become part of the landowning gentry. Manteo and Tawe were also a part of the group, once again heading back to their homeland. This time, the party included women and children and contained no organized military force. The expedition fleet consisted of three ships, the flagship, named the Lion, a flyboat, and a fully-rigged pennants, which I learned is that very stereotypical 16th-century-style boat that you'd see someone build inside of a glass bottle. Anyway... On July 22nd, the ships anchored at Croatoan Island, and White planned to take 40 men aboard the pinnace to sail to Roanoke, where he would consult the 15 men left by Grenville. We, of course, know that these dudes are long gone, but John White doesn't know that. He wanted to go and check in with them before heading further into Chesapeake Bay. But whenever he stepped onto the pinnace, a man aboard the flagship ordered the sailors to leave the colonists on Roanoke, and they were just left behind there with their one ship. The next morning, White and his party located the site of Lane's colony and found the fort dismantled. The house is vacant and overgrown with melons, which I find a very funny detail because for people and just like firsthand accounts who so often are talking about how there's little to no food. Why did you not take the melons and just like run with it? Why did we not? Why did we not make melon jam? Like, why are we not just vibing off melons for the rest of forever? I don't. If there were so many, like, why didn't we take advantage of it? I don't know. Just seems, seems like a lost opportunity to me. But there was no sign that Grenville's men had ever even been there, aside from human bones that White thought belonged to one of the Englishmen. And shortly after the arrival of the new colonists to Roanoke, a man named George Howe was killed by a native while he was searching alone for crabs in Abelmile Sound. After this conflict, White sent Manteo and other colonists to reestablish relations with the Croatan. The Croatan described to the men how a coalition of mainland tribes, led by Winchese, had attacked the men that were left by Grenville. The colonists tried to negotiate a truce through the Croatan, but ultimately received no response. On August 9th, White led a strike on Dazamangapank, but the tribe, fearing a conflict following the death of Howe, had withdrawn from the village and the English accidentally attacked Croatan looters, their only allies at this point. Manteo was able to smooth relations over once again, and for his service he was baptized and named, quote, Lord of Roanoke and Dazamongapunk, end quote. A little over a week later, on August 18, 1587, Eleanor Dare gave birth to a daughter named Virginia in honor of being the first Christian born in Virginia. Records also show that Mary Harvey gave birth shortly after Eleanor, though nothing else is known about her child. By the end of August, John White was preparing to return to England and request help for the colony's desperate situation. Also by this point, the group had agreed to relocate 50 miles up the Abelmarl Sound. White reluctantly agreed to both of these ideas and departed from the colony on August 27, 1587. After a long and difficult journey, White finally reached England on November 5, 1587. By this time though, reports that the Spanish Armada was mobilizing for an attack had reached London and so therefore Queen Elizabeth was holding all boats from leaving England in order to support any coming battle. In the winter of 1587, Grenville was granted a waiver to lead troops to the Caribbean and attack the Spanish, and White was permitted to accompany him on a supply ship. The fleet was meant to launch in March of 1588, but was kept in port due to bad weather. And within that waiting time, Grenville received new military orders. Two of the smaller ships in Grenville's fleet were deemed unsuitable for combat, and White was allowed to take them to Roanoke. The ships left England on April 22nd, 1588, but on May 6 they were attacked by French pirates near Morocco. Nearly two dozen members of the ship's crew were killed in the attack, and all the supplies bound for Roanoke were looted, so the ships had no choice other than to return to England. After White's return to England in May of 1588, the effort against the Spanish Armada continued, and even after its defeat, England maintained its ban on shipping. White would not gain permission to make another attempt at resupplying the colony until 1590. Finally, Raleigh arranged passage for White on a privateering expedition led by John Watts. And honestly, y'all, Raleigh at this point didn't care and was just kind of trying to turn the colony over to new investors. So he got John White what is, in my opinion, the shittiest ride to Virginia that he probably could have found. Poor John White just wants to go back and see if his family is like, you know, still alive after he said he'd be back in a few months and it's taken him now three years. Uh, But no, first, this fleet that he's hitched a ride on is going to spend the summer raiding Spanish outposts in the Caribbean. Like, sounds like the douchiest year for like a 17th century aristocrat. I'm going to spend my summer raiding Spanish outposts in the Caribbean. And then when they're done with all of that, they'll split off and drop white at his colony in the Outer Banks. It was August 12th, 1590, when the ships anchored at Croatoan Island just two weeks shy of three whole years after John White left the colonists. And though they stopped over at Croatoan, there's no indication that White attempted to speak with Croatan people for information. On August 15th, while anchored at the north end of Croatoan Island, the crew saw plumes of smoke coming from Roanoke. The following morning, they investigated other smoke that was coming from the southern end of Croatoan, but found nothing. White's landing party spent the next two days attempting to cross the Pamlico Sound with little success and heavy loss of life. On August 17th, they sighted a fire on the north end of Roanoke and rowed towards it, but they reached the island after nightfall and decided to not risk going ashore. It was just too dangerous. The men instead spent the night in their anchored boats just off of the shore singing English songs in hopes that surviving colonists would be able to hear. Finally, White and the other men made landfall on the morning of August 18th, which was his granddaughter Virginia Dare's first birthday. The party found fresh tracks in the sand, but did not make contact with anyone English or native. They also discovered the letters CRO carved into a tree. And upon reaching the site of the colony, White noted that the area had been fortified with a palisade, which is one of those, like, crossed stake fences that old woodsy forts, or I think I've seen it in, like, Clash of Clans. But near the entrance to that fencing, the word Croatoan was carved into one of the posts. And White was instantly certain that these two inscriptions meant that the colonists had peacefully relocated to Croatoan Island. His conclusion was based on a 15-87 agreement amongst the colonists at Roanoke that they would leave a secret token indicating their destination, or a cross indicating that they had experienced some duress or violence. Once inside of the palisade, the search party found the village's houses dismantled and anything that could be carried had been removed. Several large trunks, including some that had been left by White when he departed in 1587, had been dug up and looted. None of the colony's boats or their wreckage could be found along the shore. White and the search party returned to their ship that evening and plans were made to return to Croatoan Island the next morning. But the ship's anchor snapped and the risk of shipwreck was too high. They couldn't go on. White made a compromise with one of the ship's crew in which they would spend a winter in the Caribbean and then return to the Outer Banks in spring of 1591. This plan fell through, though, when the ship was blown off course repeatedly and was forced to return to England. Whether it was guilt, survivor's remorse, or simply he couldn't admit his failure, John White said that it was likely the colonists were fine and had just relocated somewhere up the coastline, and they were probably going to be found any day now. Sir Walter Raleigh loved this angle because keeping the matter in doubt meant that the settlers couldn't be proven dead and he could keep his claim on Virginia. Walt finally made his first transatlantic voyage in 1595, claiming to be in search of his lost colonists. He later would go on to admit, though, that this was disinformation to cover his search for the lost city of gold, El Dorado. On his return voyage, he sailed right past the Outer Banks and claimed that the weather had prevented him from being able to stop. Then later he tried to enforce his monopoly on Virginia again under the guise of looking for the lost Roanoke colonists when the price of sassafras skyrocketed. He funded a 1602 mission to the Outer Banks saying that he was looking for the colonists, but the ship's itinerary and manifest indicate that the vessel's top priority was harvesting sassafras only as far south as Croatoan Island. In 1603, Sir Walter Raleigh was implicated in the main plot and arrested for treason against King James getting his just desserts, and effectively ending his control of the Virginia Charter. Throughout the 1600s, there were a number of explorers who claimed to have found evidence of the colony moving, heard rumors from natives about what had happened to the people, or that they knew of towns where people built European-style homes or dressed in a European fashion. None of these leads ever produced any evidence, though, and by the mid-17th century, English civilians back home even thought that the colony had been murdered and therefore any harm that came to the natives in Virginia was justified retaliation. From the 1800s onward, the site was visited and investigated by the public, and finally in 1941, the National Park Service designated the area the Fort Raleigh National Historic Site. Over the years, the island and area have been host to many archeological digs and researchers, but no one has been able to discover the truth of what happened to the lost colony of Roanoke. So where does that story leave us? What are we left with? Why are we even talking about it? Why has this lasted so long as a legend? And when I think about that, I can narrow it down to three pretty basic things. Number one is that People sometimes call this the Area 51 of historical facts. It is something that because it has endured as a mystery since the 1590s, a lot of people know about. It's all over pop culture. There's a stage show about it. There was an American Horror Story season about it. I mean, it's everywhere. I learned about it for the first time in elementary school, and I'm here talking about it at 25 years old. Taking it one step beyond that, though, I think that the question really lays in, why are we so interested in this? You know, I mentioned it kind of briefly, but this was used for a while there as justification for violence against Native groups. This was used as a, oh, look what they did to us so we can do all this stuff to them. And so at some level, it confirms historic racial biases. It confirms to You know, that European centric storytelling of world history that native people were violent. They were dangerous. They were something that needed to be controlled and changed. When in reality, when it comes to this story specifically, we're talking about expedition after expedition, group after group, year after year of Englishmen just coming to this area and taking from these people. I mean at every turn, these people are coming here with the Barlow Expedition, the Lane Colony, the White Colony. They're just coming here with basically not enough to do really anything, let alone create a whole you know, new settlement. And they're just like, oh, help us, like, we're here and you should just help us because we're here. And it's like, you've done nothing for us. You've There's no reason for you to be involved in this community of giving and this You know, circle of life that, not to sound like a Disney movie, but this circle of life that all of us are living in tune with. You know, of course, all of these groups are trading amongst each other. They're communicating amongst each other. They speak each other's languages, but you don't speak any of their languages. You're not benefiting this feedback loop. You're not adding anything positive to it. You're just taking, you're just pulling and you're pulling and you're pulling. And so at some point, these people are going to act out they're going to push back and that just confirmed all of these biases that europeans and english people had against natives so at some level our obsession with this story is based in the fact that it makes natives other to the english people based in the fact that we tell it and we're like oh they must have been horribly harmed which we have no evidence for that either. So why is that immediately our answer? I think the second part of this is that it's very easy to sit here and be like, oh my god, this is a crazy mystery. And who doesn't love a mystery? I mean, I read all of the Nancy Drew books growing up. I was even a Pretty Little Liars girly. Like, I've been into mystery for a very long time. And this is one that is not only based in true historical fact but has never been solved and arguably never will be. Which leads me to my third point. It's just genuinely interesting. I mean, from a true historical sense, when we follow every piece of factual information and source information that we can, we're still left with nothing. When we follow every piece of archaeological, DNA-based, you know, artifact-based, knowledge or research, we're still coming up short. It's impossible for us as scholars, researchers, amateur, armchair enthusiasts, whatever you are, it's impossible for us to bridge the gap between 1587 and 1590. We have no idea what happened. But if I had to guess, I'm going to land on three possible answers. Starting with the one that I think is nicest and easiest to think about and ending with the one that is probably most likely in my opinion. Number one is that they integrated peacefully. They went and lived on Croatoan Island. They left behind their marker. They wanted to be found and it just so happened that because of time, circumstance, and shitty winds on the seas, John White was never able to go and find his people. And so they just lived out the rest of their days amongst groups that weren't originally their own. And it was just like that, all fine and whatever. There is very light historical evidence to support this idea with native groups in the area speaking of light skinned ancestors or ancestors who had gray colored eyes. It's entirely possible that they're speaking of ancestors with European heritage. The second theory that I hadn't even considered until I did research for this episode is that they just sailed away. They built a boat, they took all their stuff and threw it onto that boat, and they sailed away into the sea. The sea is, I don't know if you've heard, huge, and it's also very likely that they were lost. Their entire boat went down and so did everyone on board, therefore the story was lost with them this is kind of of course you know a violent and uncomfortable thing to think about but at least it has an ending right? At least we can tie it up in a neat little bow. The third and what I think is more likely of all of these scenarios is that they were killed and their bodies are simply indistinguishable from other bodies found in the area. I say this because I mean for one I'm not an archaeologist and I'm not an anthropologist so I don't really I don't know. I'm sure that there are ways for you to tell what someone ate. I I know there are ways for you to tell what someone ate or how they grew up or where they grew up based on the isotopes in their bones. But based on the research that we have right now, I'm going to hypothesize from my little pea brain in my podcast room recording that it's just kind of possible that we've missed them amongst the thousands of other burial sites and bodies that are around here this is kind of, I guess, a hybrid between a more violent version of them dying or being taken as prisoners of war by Native groups and them integrating peacefully. Because with this idea, their bodies would still be right amongst all of the Natives, but they would have not been treated as well. You know what I mean? They wouldn't have been integrated members of the community. It's just that I don't truthfully believe that it's possible for them to just willy-nilly link in with another group of native peoples whenever for so long before this the Secatan and other mainland groups of natives were actively fighting against them actively trying to ensure that they knew that they were not welcome in that area because they were shitty I mean let's just call a spade a spade right they had been they overstayed their welcome they had they'd pushed the boundaries a little too far and so I think it's entirely possible that they were just killed they were taken and they were murdered and and the fact that we didn't find any you know like evidence is because it had been 3 years and it happened shortly thereafter or you know maybe someone would point to the fact that everything that was able to be carried had been carried away and the treasure had been dug up and to that i would say okay well what about pirates right this is a busy trade route what about someone spotting this they see some fire burning you know whatever Um, Or maybe those juicy, juicy melons just attracted someone. The smell of a honeydew on the high seas. Just, (laughs) I don't even know if honeydew smell. I don't like melon, but um, I feel like all I talk about on this podcast is all the foods that I don't like. I like a lot of stuff, guys. Anyway, but (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened. And that's the reason I'm sitting here talking about it is because no one can say that they do know, right? That's the whole shebang. And we never will, basically. We'll never know because the shoreline is changing constantly. I think that there's like a 900 foot difference between what it was in the 1590s and what it was in like the 1970s. So every day actively we are losing this site. We are losing burial locations. We are losing artifacts to the ocean and we can't change that. There is a DNA project that's done through the Lost Colony Center for Science and Research. Um, It's trying to do research on finding surviving members of the original colony, people who are families of interest, and then finding a genetic link to the original members of the colony. The only issue with this is, like I said, we are yet to find a body from the lost colony. Any artifacts or DNA or bodies or anything that have been found belong to the 1585 colony um they're not from the 1587 colony they're not they're from the lane colony not the white colony uh so who knows i'm gonna i guess you know what hold on who knows i'll link the list of names in the episode description and i'll also go ahead and throw it up on instagram stories maybe you have a name on that list i know i read through the list and i saw a few people's names who i know those i know people with those last names so Who knows maybe you are the missing link and maybe we know it all is are going to solve the Roanoke colony we're going to solve it you know it's been oh shit I don't want to do that math it's been like 440 years or 430 years or something like that 433 I can do math I can do it yeah it's been a long time but we're going to fix it we're going to solve it okay um yeah I'll link that you guys check it out I don't know. I don't know here, guys. This is one where we got we to gotta work it out together, because I don't have a solid answer. And I've done so much research. I just read you a whole 25-page paper on the topic, and I couldn't even say. I can say, though, that this cup of coffee I'm drinking is absolutely delicious. Just, I don't know. Appreciate the small things in life, guys. You never know whenever your entire family history could be changed because you are lost to history. I guess that's the lesson today, that's it. I can't figure out a way to draw this one up in a neat little bow because this one hasn't been able to been put in a neat little bow for the last 433 years, as I keep coming back to because it's just that it's just the conclusion we have this week, guys. I I'm I wanted to come back with a bang and I came back with a bang of a story, but not a bang of a conclusion. Forgive me if you will. Next week, we are, I'm not even going to tell you. I was going to tell you, but you know what? No, you just have to come and find out because we're continuing the fun of Know It All Season 2. We're continuing the kind of eerie, kind of creepy, darker history vibe. And I can't wait to dig in with y'all. Um, I love you so, so much. My recommendation this week is to find a game that you've never played before. I have many to recommend. You can play Assassin's Creed. You can play Pictionary. You could play Catan, Settlers of Catan. That is like, oh my God, Settlers of Catan. That's that's top tier board games. If you're a Risk or Axis and Allies, babe, Settlers of Catan, right there, good one. But like, also I just started playing the New York Times Digits game, which is, I'm a Wordle girl, so that's how I got on that, and I'm obsessed. I am on my Duolingo grind, you already know. Just find something that gives you a little brain break. Take a break, it's important for us to take breaks. Goodbye, though. I hope you will join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Please like, share, comment, message me. In the meantime, check out that list and see if you're the missing link to Roanoke. And mostly, stay safe out there, guys. Until next time, thanks.